Well, today, as we uh, talk about our sermon, we're doing similar to what we did last week, and that we're looking at uh, a subject through an entire epistle, and so I'm going to do some selected readings uh, this morning. And it's unfortunately a little longer than last week, but this is, the, this is what I'm going to be drawing on as we talk about discipleship this morning with our third conviction. Of this you have heard before, the, before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Then down in verse 9 of chapter 1, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. From chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Down to 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, and with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. From chapter 3. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Down to verse 8, 
But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Down to 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you have been called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And lastly, from chapter 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on which account I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. So let us pray. Father, thank you from the words from Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Father, when we have this, we do not forsake the, the teachings of our parents who have instructed us in the fear of the Lord. And may we not forsake the teaching of Paul, who instructs us in the fear of the Lord, that we might know what it means to walk with Jesus. And so, help us to understand how disciples are made this morning. What that looks like, or at least what the main ingredients of it are. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I went to St. Louis last weekend, my friend told us about one restaurant that we were going to go to, and it was burgers. And I thought, man, I can get burgers any old place. And so I emailed him back and said, dude, barbecue. How can you go to St. Louis and not have good barbecue? That's one of the capitals, so to speak, of barbecue, known for slightly different barbecue than other places. And so he decided that we were going to have lunch at Pappy's. Some of you may have heard of Pappy's because one of those shows or one of these contests had declared that Pappy's had the best ribs in all of America. I don't know if they're the best ribs in all of America, but they sure were good. I want to go back for the ribs. When we talk about ribs, people have different preferences about ribs. Uh, You know, some people will want to cook it over hickory, while others want to cook it over mesquite, while others want oak. Or some people might want apple wood or cherry wood to give different hints of flavor to the meat. 
But it's not just about the smoking. It's also about what you put on the ribs. Some people like sauce. Some people like dry rub. And they want different things, and there's different recipes for what you put on those ribs before you cook them. And then people have different preferences for how you spray down those ribs while you're cooking them to make sure that it stays nice and tender, juicy, moist, instead of dried out by the smoke. Then, of course, there's the question of what you put on after they're cooked. I chose nothing because I wanted to just enjoy the greatness of those ribs without a sauce on them, and maybe I made the wrong choice. I have no idea. But if you ask how to make ribs, and you go on YouTube, you will find hundreds of different ways to make ribs. And most of them, I think, will still be tasty. As we think about discipleship and how disciples are made, I want us to remember that there are lots of ways it looks like, but there are certain things that have to happen in order to be disciples. Uh, just like making ribs. Okay? You, you mean you need wood? You need sauce or rub and all of these things, and, and you do it different ways depending upon your preferences, your circumstances but you're still making ribs. And churches, as long as they follow the basics, are still making disciples, even though how it looks in one church might be different from how it looks in another church. So how are disciples made? Well, last week we talked about the four Ps, people, proclamation, prayer, and perseverance. And as we think about the letter to the Colossians, I'm not going to repeat all of that for the whole, ser- the whole sermon, but I do want us to know that all of these are here in abundance. And they're pertinent to us as well. The four Ps. First off, people. People are important in this process. We have been delivered, as it says, from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom. And so we go back to our chart, okay? Because this encapsulates this whole thing of discipleship for us. We've been transferred from one kingdom into another kingdom by the work of Christ, and so discipleship continues to reflect that reality. It reflects the reality that we are a people, not just that we are individual people, but that we are a people that is gathered around Jesus, but that we're living, learning to live in a new kingdom, a very different kingdom. As we think about kingdom, I want us to remember that discipleship is not simply about living in the church, but it's about kingdom living living under His rule, no matter where you are. Charles Dunahue, in one of the books I'm reading on discipleship right now, is talking about kingdom discipleship, and he makes that distinction that we often sometimes forget between the church and the kingdom. And if you think about it, if the the kingdom is this big circle that represents the reign and rule of Jesus, the church is in that circle, but it is not the same as that circle. So we are both in the church as well as in the kingdom. And we live within the church, but we also live within the kingdom. Steve, why are you trying to make this distinction? Because Christians get really confused sometimes about what the church does and what happens in the kingdom. 
And so, for instance, when, when we look at the Old Testament, we see that those two circles were the same. The church and the kingdom were the same. And so we find that the instructions for righteousness, justice, equity, as we see in Proverbs 1, uh, were for all of the Israelites, and it was for the kingdom of Israel to pursue. As we think about it in terms of us, now after Jesus has come, where the kingdom is bigger than the church, the church focuses on certain things, but Christians living in the world focus on perhaps other things. What do I mean by that? I mean that as a church, we're not marching for justice. But as Christians, we should be working for justice. Because that is kingdom work, and it's appropriate. But it's not appropriate for me to be leading justice groups or something here. But do you understand the distinction I'm trying to make? God cares about these things. But there is a way in which they're done uh, that is, I think, pleasing to him. And there are ways in which they're pursued that are not necessarily pleasing to him. I hope that didn't confuse everybody. We might make it a little more clear Wednesday night when we talk about politics. Okay. <laughs> but there's this distinction. But, but, but the scripture indicates to us how we live in the church and how we live in the world which is under the authority of Christ in both places. Not just people, but pray. Paul did not know the Colossians. Paul knew Epaphras who planted that church, but he did not know them. But he says, since I've heard about you, I haven't stopped praying for you. We have not ceased to pray. So that those who believe also receive Christ's blessing. That's really what he's praying about in that large section in chapter 1. Uh, that, that what Jesus has won for them would, would be experienced by them. That they would have spiritual wisdom. They would, they would have understanding. That they would know what it's like to walk with God and please God and to bear good fruit. He's praying that they would experience this just as he prayed for the Ephesians in chapter 1 and chapter 3 of his letter to them, which is a sister letter to this one. But then later on, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. So I want you to see that, that the flow of how prayer works in Colossians. First, it's Paul praying for them. And they then begin to, because they're discipled and apprentices, they begin to pray for one another. But not just that, Paul says, pray for us also that the word may go forth. And so as disciples learn to pray, they're not just praying about themselves, they're praying for one another, and they're praying for the continuance of the gospel and the rest of the world. And so discipleship is about prayer. Which is why Paul tells the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Proclaim. In Him, uh, sorry, Him we proclaim from verse 29. Warning everyone and teaching. Okay? In order to disciple other peoples, other people, you must proclaim Jesus Christ 
warning people and teaching or instructing people. And so what we see here is Paul's talking about his ministry, and there's a sense in which through this letter, the, the, peop, the Christians in Colossae are being instructed, they're being warned, they're being ta- taught, and Christ is being proclaimed to them. Well, what's supposed to happen then? Well, remember, one of the words that we've used that to describe disciples is apprentices, and so that they also begin to teach and admonish one another. We see that in chapter 3. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Why? So that you can teach and admonish one another. So if you feel like you can't teach and admonish other people, it means you still need to be discipled. So that you have enough knowledge of the word that dwells within you that you can speak from it to the circumstances of others in a way that helps them move farther along in Jesus. We see a similar thing in Ephesians chapter 5 where he talks about being filled with the Spirit in this parallel passage. And one of the things is that, again, just like we see here in, in Colossians, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, uh, but teaching one another, submitting to one another. So there's a sense in which as apprentices, as we grow, we begin to preach the gospel not just to ourselves, but we begin to preach the gospel to one another. To lay out these truths of scriptures, of the scriptures, to remind one another of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and the implications for that in how we live. Singing is one of the ways that we proclaim this gospel to one another and offer praise to God. So if you think, I can't really teach all that much, well, you can sing, can't you? Okay, I can't, but some of you, you can sing, but we all sing. It doesn't matter how well we sing. The point is what we sing. And as we sang some of those songs earlier, uh, that's part of discipleship. That's part of how we're formed in the Christian faith is as we sing together. Proclamation is for all Christians as well as all kinds of specific needs in terms of church life and kingdom living. And one of the things where Paul goes here in uh, Colossians 3, after he talks about the word dwelling richly in you, is he begins to break it up in terms of wives. He talks about husbands, and he talks about children, and he talks about dads, and he talks about servants, and he talks about masters. And how there's this general core of Christian conduct that we all experience or all are called to, but there's also some specifics that flow out of it based on your role or relationships. It's important for us to keep that in mind. That who you are also indicates uh, what God has for you to bear good fruit in His world. World, tongue twister for me this morning. But it's not just that. We see perseverance there as well. Paul talks about struggling with all his energy that he that powerfully works within me at the end of chapter 1. 
But I want to stop for that for a moment. And just to say this. His power is at work in Paul as Paul does this. It's not a Paul waiting and praying to feel the strength to get up and do it. It's Paul experiencing the empowerment of God as he fulfills his calling. Sometimes I kind of think of this when I'm, do I have the strength to get out of bed today? Today was one of those mornings I didn't want to get out of bed. God only gives the strength when I try to get out of bed. I don't sit there and wait until I have said strength. How these elements are brought together will differ by churches and uh, individuals, just like people have different recipes for how to make ribs. And so persevere in praying and proclaiming Christ to people. As we think about this, what are the means and goals of discipleship? That's what I want us to think about now. Slightly different, okay? But it's still intimately connected to how to make disciples. Uh, This might seem obvious to you, but uh, if you're going to make tasty ribs, you need ribs, right? There's no such thing as ribs without ribs. And I'm going to tell you now that there is no such thing as Christian discipleship without Jesus. For instance, Jesus is the one, as we heard already, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, there's no discipleship apart from the previous, the, the, the prior forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus alone because of his death on the cross. No Jesus, no Christian discipleship. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus is the one that Paul proclaimed, as we see from Colossians 1.29. And as a result, Jesus is the one that we are to proclaim to one another as disciples. We don't proclaim the Buddha. We don't proclaim Muhammad. uh, We don't proclaim Krishna or anything else. Jesus. He is the one. Jesus, as Paul says in chapter 3, is the one that we received by faith as Lord. And Jesus is the one in whom we walk by faith. In other words, uh, faith in Jesus is essential to Christian discipleship. Faith in Jesus, discipleship is always calling for faith in Christ. Because you can't walk in a manner pleasing to God apart from faith in Christ. As the author of the Hebrews says, without faith it is impossible to please God. 
And so discipleship is about calling people to faith, uh, not simply for salvation, but in the midst of their circumstances. Uh, that God is for them, not against them, even though that they don't have a job right now. That God is for them, not against them, as they try to love a spouse who's not very lovable and not very loving. Or faith in Christ when you want to be married, and you're not. And you feel pain. Are you going to trust Jesus to be sufficient for you in the midst of that? That's what discipleship calls people to. Paul also gets a little more specific. He says that they have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And so uh, they've put away the sin associated with life in Adam, uh, sin associated with the life they had before they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Because remember, most of these people were Gentiles. Now they're to put on true godliness, true holiness in Christ. What's the goal look like? The goal looks like Jesus. He's the one whose image we are to seek to form in people through discipleship. Jesus, the second Adam, is the one that we're seeking to form. I've mentioned this before, but I want to say it again because it bears repeating, and and I sound like Peter when I say this. It does me no harm to say it again. I'm not trying to make you like me. Our church is not trying to make you like Marty or Mark, except in as much as we are like Jesus. We see this in places like Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He wants you to bear the family resemblance of big brother Jesus. We see the same thing in Ephesians 4, putting off the old self, putting on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so we see that Jesus is not just how we enter in discipleship, not how we continue into discipleship, but Jesus is what we're being discipled into. He's the standard. He's the model. He's the goal of godliness because he is the flawless image of God. And he wants to make us restored as images of God. And so as Paul fleshes this out for the, for the Colossians, he says, among other things, be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, which leads into this idea of bearing with and forgiving one another when they sin against you. What is he describing there? Who is he describing there? Jesus. That's who he's describing. So again, he's talking about them sharing the likeness of Christ in how they relate to one another. 
in terms of how they live within the body and how they treat outsiders. He gets to that in chapter 4. But being like Jesus is in fact contrary to the flesh and therefore requires that teaching and admonishing that we talked about earlier. This is not unique to Colossians, and it's not unique to Paul. Let's just look for a second at 1 Peter. Different apostle, different group of people, and yet Peter says to them, finally, in verse uh, three, chapter 3, verse 8, finally all of you, not some of you, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. When's the last time you've been called to a humble mind? And yet we're all called to have a humble mind. And then later in chapter 4, verse 7, he's reminding them that the end of all things is at hand, and as a result, or therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving each other earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Paul and Peter make much of this. And discipleship ought to be helping people become this. Uh, Yesterday we we watched A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And of course, uh, Fred Rogers went to seminary with R.C. Sproul. They were classmates. They went very different paths. (laughs) Uh, Fred was of a liberal brand of uh, Presbyterianism, okay? I'm I'm not trying to point uh, Mr. Rogers up as the, the, the best Christian in the universe. But he certainly acted like a better Christian than me when we see how gentle he was, how present he was with people, how caring he was to people. And it was interesting because in this movie, um, based on, I think, some real-life experiences, the, uh, the guy writing the article was very skeptical. He thought he, he was expecting to find a fraud in Fred Rogers, that there was a disconnect between who he is on TV and who he is in real life. And uh, Fred reminded him, well, I'm a human being and sometimes I get angry and things like that. But he was talking with his wife, Joanne. The, the investigative reporter was talking to Joanne and said, well, how does he do this? Well, every day he reads the scriptures and every day he prays for people and he swims and he pounds on his piano so he doesn't pound on people. That last part I added. (laughs) Relationships are really hard. Being with people is really hard. It's hard to be what Peter and Paul describe here. Precisely because sin ruins relationships. Wrath, greed, bitterness, immorality, all work death in relationships. 
And you all know it. You've all seen it. And perhaps you've even experienced it. But I think of our presbytery, and, and there are two men in the last, you know, five, six years whose wives left them because they were not good husbands. And it doesn't just affect that marriage. And it doesn't just affect those kids. One of those churches left our denomination. Another church is very angry at us for having tried to discipline that man. Sin ruins relationships. I'm watching it unfold in another situation. And it's mind-blowing how sin has done this and just the, the ways in which it is ripping congregations apart. And we need to listen. We need to be discipled so that we begin to do our relationships in the, in the manner that pleases God. And I want you to know that God is going to use you as well as change you in relationships. Let's stop for a second. God is love. That's 1 John. That's the text that Augustine uses to explain the Trinity. That, that, that because of that, I mean, love has to have an object, right? And so we have this divine community that has existed forever in love for one another, glorifying one another and encouraging one another and all of that. Therefore, when we look at the law, this is why Jesus can say that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That this is essentially the law of love. It's about how to love God, what it looks like, and it's about what it looks like to love your neighbor. Sin is an expression of self-love, not love for God or neighbor. Which is why sin is intensely relational, just as godliness is intensely relational. In other words, you can't be a good Christian as a hermit. There are days I wish I had millions of dollars so I could move to a deserted island and not deal with the world. But God has placed me in the world in order to deal in the world and as well as to change me. Disciples are devoted to gospel community. Jared Wilson talks about, and I've, I share this in every membership class, and I have to keep going back to it. For me, 
The message of grace will get people into your church, but it is a culture of grace that keeps them there. In other words, it's not just me saying things about grace, but that us living by grace and exhibiting grace to one another. If we're not doing that, then we just pack it up and go home. Because we've completely missed the boat. That's why Paul says in the Galatians that what matters is faith expressing itself in love. That's why in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul goes back to love. If you have everything and you have, don't have love, you've got nothing. Yeah, I'm passionate about this. Love for the brothers, love for the sisters. How does this happen? Colossians 2 brings us back to our union with Christ in His death and in His resurrection and to new life. It happens because we're connected to Jesus. It happens because we receive all the wisdom He has and He he has the treasure of all wisdom in Himself. He has the strength and the power in Himself. It's not about us. It's about Him being gracious to us. So we proclaim Christ. So disciples become like, like Christ as the goal. This bears sort of a different question. It's a related question. How are disciples not made? If I were to try to make my ribs in a microwave, you would probably cast me out of this community. (coughs) Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church to address a particular problem that was going on. And I don't think I realized this particular problem when I preached through Colossians all those years ago here. I think I had an aha moment, or maybe it was just a reminder. Maybe I remembered it, or I I forgot that I knew this. But the problem that he's addressing is a problem of syncretism. That's a problem that the people of Israel struggled with repeatedly. And so what they would do is they'd talk about Yahweh and and let's praise the Lord, but what they would do is they'd bring in the practices of the nations around them that corrupted their worship. And so they worshipped, they tried to worship the holy God in unholy ways. They tried to worship the holy God along with the unholy gods of the Canaanites. So what I think we see here, what I believe we see here in Colossians, particularly in chapter 2, is this idea of syncretism. That there were certain people within the visible church of Colossae that had just kind of added Jesus to their pantheon as opposed to removing their pantheon and simply worshiping only Jesus. Okay? That's one of the problems with a lot of Hindus. Is that they'll see Jesus as God and go, Oh great, another God for me to worship. 
They don't see him as the God, but simply another God to add to the pantheon. We see this in, in certain places, particularly in Africa, um, in the Caribbean, where Jesus is added to their own worship to create this new hybrid sort of worship that's not really Christian and it's, it's not really ancestor worship or voodoo. Okay. And so it's, it's, it's into this that Paul speaks to them. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, and he's not meaning about Aristotle, okay, uh, or empty deceit. Why is it empty? Why is it deceitful? Because it's empty of Jesus. But we see here uh, that false doctrine imprisons people. False doctrine blinds people. False doctrine leads people astray, and it cannot deliver on the promises it offers. I think of this, or I should think of this, every time I see one of those fake meats. You know, the the vegan sausage. The Oh, what do they call it now? The impossible burger. Yeah, it's impossible. It ain't a burger. And if I eat those, I'm going to die because my blood pressure is going to go through the roof because of all the salt they stick in that stuff to try and make it taste like a burger. It won't deliver on the promises that it makes. And so is a religion apart from Jesus. But it's not just that. Discipleship is not about what you can eat or can't eat. It isn't about which holidays that you celebrate or can't celebrate. And so what we find is that some of the people who were Jewish had just sort of added Jesus on uh, to their experience as Jews and not seen that Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament law with regard to um, sacrifices and worship and all of that. And they just tag Jesus on and they're still worshiping in terms of those Sabbath days, the, the bonus days, the festival days. They're still celebrating new moons and all of these things. And so some of them were Jewish and just added Jesus to what they already had. And to them, he says that, that these things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's what matters. He's the substance. And we I mean, think of that. It's like, like right now I can see, some of you can see, my shadow. Right? It's harder over here because of the angle of the light. Sorry, folks, who are over here. There's a shadow there, right? Say yes to them. Okay. <laughs> Not you. Oh, you can see it. Yeah. Okay. What's the reality? My hand. That's the reality. This is a shadow. And so that's a lighter shadow. Don't focus on the shadow. Focus on the substance. And that's what Paul's telling them. Don't focus on these shadows. Focus on Christ, who's the real deal, who's what matters. Not this other stuff. 
These Old Testament statutes pointed to Christ who fulfilled them and then rendered them obsolete or empty. But it's not just Jewish people that were struggling with this. We see that some of the pagans, uh, the Gentiles who had converted, struggled with this because they hadn't left behind their worship of the elemental spirits. They're still trying to appease the sun and the moon and the stars and the wind and the storm gods. They're still looking to mediators like angels. They're still relying upon asceticism, self-made religion, etc. They've just added Jesus to that thing. And Paul says, no. Godliness is not produced by those things, but godliness is produced by the means of grace precisely because they bring us to Jesus. So any method of discipleship that doesn't focus and direct you to Jesus is a counterfeit and therefore worthless. Jesus is not simply added to your culture. Jesus is not simply added to your community. But, but um, allegiance to Jesus replaces those things. What does that mean for us? Briefly. You don't take the American dream and add Jesus. You get a hybrid Americanized gospel when you do that. You don't get the gospel when you do that. Jesus doesn't get tacked on to our political leanings. People can have customs that, that uh, are focused on the family of origin. This is what we do, and, and this is how we deal with things. And, and uh, you don't just tack Jesus onto that. Jesus changes how you do things. Jesus changes how you work. Jesus changes how you handle money. Jesus changes how you handle sex. Jesus changes it all. You don't just simply add Jesus to those things. And so we make true disciples by pointing them to Jesus for all things. Well, ribs are made in a variety of ways, uh, but they usually contain certain ingredients that are similar. The, the main one is the ribs, of course. But you spice them, you smoke them, and then you enjoy them. Discipleship is sort of the same way. It includes people, it includes prayer, it includes proclamation and perseverance, but of course the main ingredient that makes it discipleship is Jesus. Discipleship is a joy when we are becoming like Jesus because we increasingly delight in Jesus. So don't settle for fake discipleship, but enjoy one that involves gospel-centered community and that is seeking to make you like Jesus. Like eating ribs, discipleship is best done with other people. Let's pray. Father, uh, that was more than a rack of ribs right there. Um, may it not be too much for your people. But may they be encouraged to lay down the false ways of discipleship they have in their mind and, and to pick up the right 
ideas of discipleship, to be moving in a, a right, better direction, and to see Jesus as the main thing in all of it. Jesus that we pray to, Jesus who made us a people, Jesus who we proclaim, and Jesus who gives us strength to persevere. It's all about Jesus. So help us to be all about Jesus in a thoughtful way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.